Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I want to flow straight from worship into what I have to share with you this morning because it, it unexpectedly in some ways... I suppose we should expect God to do these things, flows right into the message that I want to share with you this morning. I want to start with asking you a question. And it's a personal question. It's a rhetorical question. I don't expect you to shout out the answer. But here's the question. What is God saying to you at this moment? I don't believe, I'm not speaking of right now, But in your quiet time with God, what is He saying to you? What is His prevailing word over your heart and over your life at this minute? Very often when we come and we spend our time with God, let's be honest, a lot of our time is taken up with requests, with things that that we need, with prayers that we feel need to be prayed, with giving God an agenda, a list of things to do, and we'll check in tomorrow morning, God, and give you your performance review. That's sort of, that's sort of I'm, I'm kidding, we don't really do that, but our prayer times are taken up with a lot of praying, a lot of things that assail our minds that we kind of bring to God and we hope to leave them there, but we take them and pick them up again as the day goes on. And we generally don't take a lot of time to actually sit at the feet of God and say, God, what are you actually saying to me right now? I'm, am I right now at the center of, of where you want me to be doing what it is that you want me to do? Am I engaged in your process of preparation for this season of my life because of where it is that you want to take me to? And so I want to, I want to bring this question. We, I open with this question, and I'm going to depart from it, and we're going to come right back to it at the end again. And today I want to spend most of our time focusing on a story that we're probably quite familiar with. But it's the story of four young Jewish men. Many years ago, as we know, the book of Daniel tells us that the land of Israel was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So he came and he besieged Jerusalem and he commanded his his chief eunuch to bring some of the best Jews into Babylon, the finest men, the men of royal descent and the best that they could find, the handsome ones, the, the, the prosperous ones, and bring them into Babylon so that they could be taught the language and the literature or the culture of the Chaldeans. In other words, so that they could be indoctrinated. They could be trained in the way that we do things and so that they could serve. And, and you know, as one kingdom takes over another, what is their desire? To make that it's colonization. And so this is what King Nebuchadnezzar ordered. Nebuchadnezzar ordered. And, and so... A whole lot of, of, of these men were brought into Babylon, and four of them we know quite well. Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, Daniel. Oh, wait, no, you don't know them as that. That's right, because in Babylon their names were changed. Daniel became known as Belteshazzar. That's quite a name. Hananiah, his name was changed to Shadrach. Mishael's name was changed to Meshach, and Azariah's name was changed to Abednego. 
And so there we have these four men now in the kingdom of Babylon being raised up and trained by those, who, by, by those ordered by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to do so. And after some, what happens is, after some time they, they, they're there, the king says to them, these fine men, these choicest men, you can give them certain privileges. They can eat from the, you know, from the stuff that is fed to the king. They can drink some of the same wine and they can have some of the privileges of the position that we are giving them. But we see that these four men chose, the Bible says, not to defile themselves. You know, some of those, those, those animals and things that were being eaten had been sacrificed to gods. And so they said, we don't want to be partaking in these kinds of things. Let us just eat vegetables and give us water to drink. So the eunuch says, look, I can't do that because that would be going against the order of the king. And I, they, he'll have my head for that. If he sees you guys are looking miserable and poor and weak because you're not eating properly. So they make a proposition. They say, do this for 10 days. Just give us vegetables and water for 10 days and we will, and then see after 10 days if we do not, you know, how we look, how we compare to the rest. And so he did. After 10 days, he looked at these men and they were fatter. The Bible says fatter. That goes against every vegetarian doctrine you've ever heard. And they looked healthier and more vibrant than all the others. It's very interesting to note, Daniel never went on a fast. We have this thing these days called the Daniel fast. There's no such thing. Daniel just decided not to defile himself with those things that were offered up to the king. Daniel fast is a divine diet for 21 days. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't get it. I've tried it once. Didn't enjoy it. Complete. I, I, I digress. Let's get back onto, onto the point here. So after those 10 days, these men looked better. And it, it, the Bible, the, the scripture actually says God favored them. He gave them favor. And it says after that that the king tested them, tested their abilities, and when he saw the favor of God on them, when he saw the wisdom that they had, the knowledge that they had, he gave them positions serving directly under him. So he exalted them, gave them prominent positions. And we understand the story that after some time, you see, when we read the Bible, especially the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel is not very short, a book like Daniel, you know, the sequence of events kind of goes one after the other, but it's, it's very hard to understand. Sometimes there's time involved, and sometimes substantial periods of time. So after some time, things happen. King has a dream. Daniel interprets the dream. They all get promoted again. After some more time, the king makes a statue. I don't know if it's of himself or of a deity or a god, but we know that it's this big golden statue. And he says that when the band begins to play and there's harmony, everybody must turn and face the statue and bow. And that's this new thing that he implemented. And it was reported to the king that three of these Hebrew guys, you see, I don't know where Daniel is at this point. Maybe he was separate from them. But these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were not bowing to this golden statue that the king had made. And the scripture says he was furious. He was really, really angry. And so the king threatens them. And we're going to read a few portions from, this, from Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. We'll read from verse 15. It says, Now, if you are ready at the time when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony, with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. So he's giving them another chance. He's warning them here. The Bible says he was furious. If you bow down, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. 
And he who is God, uh, sorry, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Pause for a minute. They're not, they're not being cocky. They're saying basically, in essence, we, we have no need to defend ourselves here. We have no, your accusation is right. We did not bow down. And with respect, we will not bow down. So they're not trying to defend themselves or trying to say you're being unjust by expecting us to do this. They're just saying we have no defense. If that is the case, in other words, if that is your decision, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. And then we begin to see a glimpse of something that we're going to be coming back to again and again throughout this morning's message. Something inside these men says there's a, there's a measure of confidence, there's a measure of trust, a measure of steadfastness in who their God is. And he says to them, our God will deliver us from this fiery furnace. And then he goes on to say, but even if he does not, let it be known that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set. In other words, they're saying to him, King, our hearts are set in this direction, and no matter what you say, you're not going to dissuade us. And if it costs us our life, if it costs us our reputation and our privileges, we're okay with that. But this is our priority. This is where we're going. And so the king prepares the furnace, and in his rage he says, I want you to heat this furnace seven times hotter than we normally heat it. They bound these young men, and they threw them into the furnace. And the gods that put them into the furnace died of the heat. They burned up. That's how hot the furnace was. And then we see this, and we know the story. I don't want to go into all the details. This incredible thing happens. They're looking into the furnace. They can see four people there. And the one looks like a light, probably because he might have been on fire. He says, the image as the Son of God is there in the midst of this furnace. And they're, they're not burned. And eventually the king calls to them and he says, come out. And they come out. They're not on fire. They're not, not a hair on their body is singed. They don't even smell of smoke. And God has mightily delivered them out of the furnace. And we see this mighty deliverance, and the response from Nebuchadnezzar is, Nebuchadnezzar is he praises God. He says, wow, you guys are onto the real true thing. And what does he do? He promotes them again. He says, you guys have clearly got some favor on your lives. You're important, guys. I need this kind of stuff in my kingdom. And he gives them positions of prominence. So some more time elapses. A dream gets interpreted. A little while later, the king loses his mind. Ten years later, he finds his mind again. You know, you kind of read this and it all kind of... There's ten years that King Nebuchadnezzar sleeps outside in the dew, wakes up in the dew, eats grass. He, he literally went out of his mind. Why? Because of pride. He looked over his kingdom one day and said, Look at all that I have done. And God said, No. So he lost his mind. During that time, his son... Belshazzar takes the throne and he reigns. <clears throat> and then eventually Daniel and Belshazzar have this, this encounter where they talk about graffiti. God was telling Belshazzar the writing is on the wall, literally, because that very night the interpretation of the hand that, that wrote the, the writing on the wall was that his days were numbered, his time was coming to an end. Daniel interprets the writing, and that night Belshazzar is killed. 
Darius the Mede takes power. The king wanted to promote Daniel to govern the whole realm because he saw this man's wisdom. And what happened? All the other guys started getting a little bit jealous. Um, and so they concocted a plan to discredit Daniel. Daniel 6 verse 5 says, And these men said that they're trying to discredit him. They're trying not to get him promoted. They want to be promoted. They don't understand why this person, this Jew, is going to be given this, this basically the position over all the king's authority. Daniel would be given such, such a high statesman's position. And they didn't like that. Why would this, why, how can we allow this Jew to ascend this position? Would, would have been the thinking. And they said, we shall not find a charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. What an incredible testimony. That Daniel didn't put a foot wrong. They had no accusation against him. He lived his life in an upright manner of honesty and integrity and excellence in everything that he did. And so they couldn't discredit him in any of his work or of the decisions that he made. So they said, we've got to use this thing. That's the only way we're going to get him to slip or to get him demoted. So what they did is these guys came, basically they thronged the king, and they said, asked him to issue a decree that no one could petition any man or any god for 30 days except the king. So you are now this new king. Nobody's allowed to, to pray to anybody or to go and seek counsel or advice or wisdom from anybody. They have to come to you for the next 30 days. That was their decree. The king issues the decree, and that afternoon, Daniel goes back into his house, he goes to the upper room, he opens his windows, and he prays. As was his custom, the Bible says. Three times a day, he went up to the upper room, opened his windows, and prayed. As a result, what happens? King is furious, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Actually, the truth is, the king is not furious. This king is actually really regretful. He realizes that these guys had plotted to throw his favorite guy in, you know, to, to, to undo him. And he was actually, he tried to get out of it. He tried to, but they came back and said, no, 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 the law says once the king has issued a decree, that decree cannot be changed. And so with a very heavy heart, he delivers Daniel into the lion's den. We pick up the story in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It says, now when Daniel knew... Oh, wait, no, wrong one. Oh, yes, yeah, it is right. When he knew... I'm jumping around here, sorry. The order of my notes is clearly a little bit wonky. When, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed about this decree, he went home in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down uh, on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to the Lord, as was his custom since the early days. And so what the point I'm making here is that there's, there's a pattern to the way Daniel did things. Kick forward to the scripture that I did want to read, Daniel 6, 19. And we're going to read through to 28. And this is the story of, of how the king is really upset by all of this. And so then the king, so Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den and we pick it up the next morning. The king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of the lion's and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Note those words. This isn't Daniel saying this. 
This is the king seeing this man's life. Has your God, whom you serve, continually? There's a track record here. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the mouths, the lion's mouths, so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because, why? Because he believed in his God. Because he trusted in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the lion's to the den. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they even came to the bottom of the den. Before they even reached the bottom, I don't believe that they threw them in the lion, threw them in the lions, caught them midair, and did all of that before they even landed on the ground. I mean, there was obviously a journey to get to the bottom, I guess, a stairway, I don't know. But they didn't even make it to the bottom of the lion's den. The lions had taken... They were hungry, is the point they're trying to make here. It's not that they didn't eat Daniel because, uh, you know, we had a big lunch. They were hungry lions. And then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. So here he makes another decree. That in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. Now, this is a heathen king. And he is making a proclamation and a statement that Daniel's God, your God, my God, is... Is what? The God is steadfast forever. Forever. That means, and it's true, by the way, it's a true statement... That means as steadfast as he was back then is as steadfast as he is today is as steadfast as he will always be. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus said it this way, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. Everlasting kingdom. And his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. After this, we have a few more visions, a few more interpretations, some eschatological prophecies, until the story eventually winds itself out at the end of the book. But there's a point that I want to make from this story this morning. What is it that enabled these men to stand strong in the face of death, in the face of overwhelming opposition? What is it that enabled them to stand before a king and say, we realize this could be our death, but with respect, we will not bow to you? What is it that enabled Daniel to say, I know the decree that you have made. Thanks for the decree. I'm going home to break it. I'm going home to pray openly. 
that everyone knows where I stand. I want to say to you this morning that the courage and devotion found in these young men did not come in the moment of their trial. But it was the product of their lifestyle of dedication and spiritual discipline. You know, when we talk of martyrs, when we talk of what some people, even today, in different parts of the world go through, do you ever sit and wonder, I wonder if I'd be able to stand and praise Jesus while I'm being burned? And some people will say, and I think rightly, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know because I've never been put in that situation. Other people will boldly say, yes, they'll have a Peter kind of encounter. I will never deny you, Jesus. Other people say that in that moment, God will give you grace to do what he needs and wants you to do. Sure, all of those. But I want to say to you, the grace that these men had the strength that these men had didn't come just from a moment. It came from a lifestyle of dedication and devotion to God that they had lived since they were young little boys. Throughout this entire account, there is a pattern of consistency and of spiritual discipline. The, the, the fruit of, their, of their, their daily disciplines, their spiritual practices, was the manifestation of their wholehearted faith and devotion to God. I want to say that again. The fruit of their spiritual practices was the manifestation of their wholehearted faith towards God. They were not undercover believers. They were not incognito Christians or Jews, however you want to say it. But their faith was manifested everywhere they went and in everything they did to the degree that people would look at them and say, look, we're not going to get these guys to fall unless it has to do with their faith. We see the excellence in them. We see the way they live their lives. Again and again, we see God, because of this, working on their behalf. God didn't just work on their behalf in the moment when He delivered them and met them in the furnace and walked them out of it. God didn't just meet Daniel in the moment when He delivered him from the mouth of the lions. He gave them special health after eating just vegetables. He gave them wisdom and understanding above all the other men. Divine deliverances, like we've spoken about. He gave them great favor, divine interpretations to dreams, divine prophecies that were spoken through the mouth of Daniel. You see, the the evidence and the manifestation of the presence of God in their lives wasn't just in those big moments. And I mean, we've all heard how many sermons about the lion's den and how many sermons about the fire, the furnace. But really, the glory of those moments... There's something underneath it all. There's a common thread that links this all together. All the favor of God, all the dreams, the visions, the interpretations. It was not some passive hope or set of religious traditions that these men were living in. They had a living and a vibrant relationship with God that was manifest. And everyone could see it. Not once... Throughout the whole book, do we see them trusting in their own abilities? Not once. Their faith was clear. It was set. Folks, I want to say to you that this is the same reason that when David comes to his brothers on the front lines of battle, he says to them, what's going on here? When everybody is cowering away from this giant, 
David runs towards him with absolute faith. It's a, it's a done deal. It's a victory before I've even entered the battle. Everybody looked at this giant and said, he is huge. He's going to kill us. David looked at the giant and said, he's huge. I can't miss. <laughs> he came in with a completely different perspective. Why? Because there was a living and a vibrant relationship that he had with God. And he looks at this and he goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Everyone else is looking at him and saying, this guy is huge. They focus on the natural stuff. They focus on how big he is, how strong he is. It took three men to carry his sword kind of thing. And David looks at this guy and he says, okay, he's big, but my God. Who is he compared to God? King, we know you're going to throw us into the furnace, but my God, he's going to deliver us. And if he doesn't, he's still way bigger and way more powerful. Who's going to deliver us? You out of this? <laughs> Our God is. Daniel the lion's den. God sent an angel and he shut up. Folks, I don't know what you are facing right now, but God. How much bigger is God than the mountain you are facing, than the situation that is causing you to tremble? But the level of boldness that these men have, the level of revelation of who God is, did not come just in that moment. It came through a lifestyle of disciplined devotion to spending time with God, to being in His presence, to praying to Him daily, three times a day in the case of Daniel. There are giants coming your way. There are mountains God wants you to scale. But they will overwhelm you if you are not found in that place of consistency day by day where God is able to renew your mind and build into you that strength that when the giant comes, he doesn't surprise you and you go, whoa, what am I going to do? You look at it and you go, <laughs> all right. There's a story of a, of, a, of a, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been C.S. Lewis, but I may have this horribly wrong. He woke up in the middle of the night one night, and at the foot of his bed he said, I saw the devil standing there. And he looked at him and he said, oh, it's you, and turned over and went back to sleep. <laughs> what would you do if you saw the devil at the end of your bed? Here. Yeah. You see, these men, David, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these stories of these heroes of our faith, they have, something in com they have something in common. They did not consider their personal comfort as something to pursue. David rocks up on the battlefield. He says, is there not a cause? Is there not something bigger than you or me here that is at play? You're worried about your life. What is your life? What is my life? Is there not something bigger than me? They didn't consider their personal comfort something to pursue. They were not led by how they felt, but rather found and expressed their passion through discipline. Siobhan said something very interesting to me this, this, this week. We had a conversation, and as he said it, it kind of, you know, some of these things had been rolling around in my head already. And it, so I said to him, thanks, you've given me some something to throw in on Sunday morning. 
He said he watched some kind of interview where people were talking about passion. And we have this thing out there in life that says you must pursue your passion. And once you give yourself to your passion, you know, you will find joy and fulfillment in whatever it is that you do. And all these people who had found their passion and had been living in it all kind of said the same thing, that, that that's really quite a myth. Because whatever you truly give yourself to, you will become passionate about. Sure, gifting matters. Sure, your interests have a role to play. But whatever you give yourself to wholeheartedly, you will develop a passion for. But you will never develop a passion for anything that you are not disciplined in. So let me give you an example. When I was about 16 years old, I, um, I was taking piano at school. I wasn't taking it as a subject. Uh, I, I wasn't very, you know, they weren't very serious about me. The teachers, they were, they were more interested in the students who were doing it as a subject, and I completely understand that. So I was feeling pretty unfulfilled in, in my, you know, learning to play piano. And I wanted to play the guitar. <clears throat> when I was a little kid, I went for lessons for, for about a year, I think it was, and I learned how to read the chord configurations, and I could remember how to do that. So I pulled out an old book. I managed to buy one or two other books because I now wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And I want to tell you something. I was passionate about wanting to play the guitar. It didn't start off that way, but it certainly got that way. I would come home from school, and I would easily spend an hour, two hours every single day trying to get my fingers to do what my brain wanted them to do, trying to learn how to flow between the chords and all these kinds of things. Used to sing along to the songs. My sister would open the door and go, quiet, please. You can play. That's okay. Just please don't sing. And she'd shut the door, singing everything in keys that just really didn't fit. I used to have a picture of Eric Clapton used to have a black guitar called Blackie. It took three Fender Stratocasters, broke them down, reassembled them with the best of each, and this was his prized guitar. I had a picture of that on my wall. That's all I ever wanted. I became so passionate about every day I would sit and I would learn and I would play. And at that stage, my sister was engaged to a guy she's now married to, Simon. He says to me one day, we're driving in the car, and he puts on a song, and he says... I'll tell you you're a good guitarist when you can play this song. Any guess is what I did. <laughs> Man, I found the tabs. I found the music. And I practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And every time I feel a little bit down about myself, I just play that because then that means I'm a good guitarist, right? <laughs> the point is this. To pursue that, to make it anything of real value, to make it so that I can stand up here and lead worship without really having to think too much about what the fingers are doing, because I found a rhythm and a groove and a, and a feel and a style. It took hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. And I know that if I want to improve, which I do, it's going to take hours and hours and hours of practice. Now, if we put that much effort into playing the guitar, if we put that much effort into a recipe, if we put that much effort into a job, should we not be putting at least that much effort into our spiritual journey with God, who is the source of all life? It didn't take me long to discover the truth, and you know, to say to myself, what is playing the guitar? if I can't play the guitar to worship God. Because to me, that's where my heart is. 
as much as I wanted to be the next Eric Clapton sort of thing, you know? Play these beautiful riffs and do all these gorgeous things. You know, all, every time I do them, I realize they draw attention to me about how badly I play. And my heart just isn't satisfied with that. Because there's something else in my heart that doesn't want to draw attention to myself. I'm grateful for my gift, but I'm so grateful that I don't have to draw the attention to myself with that gift. What is playing the guitar for me? What is going to work every day if I can't do it as unto the Lord? What is anything if we can't do it as an act of worship to God? Spiritual disciplines, folks, are a process of continually, regularly, habitually giving yourself over to something. I want to see, we often think of discipline as doing something. I want you to rethink that this morning. Because discipline is not doing something. It's giving yourself over to something. Discipline and, the, and disciple have the same root word. And what is a disciple? What is the definition of a disciple? Someone who has given themselves to following Jesus. If you want to be my disciples, in other words, those who are disciplined in my ways, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the order of discipline. So our discipline starts with me denying myself. Denying myself what? Pleasure, comfort, relaxation. Why? Because there's something I want more. And the truth is, I'm not always going to feel like it. So how do I discipline myself? How do I develop a passion for something? We've got to understand this principle, folks, that we develop an appetite for that on which we regularly feed. I want to say that again. We develop an appetite for that on which we regularly feed. Sometimes our journeys with God have to begin in self-inflicted law before they find life. So, for example, when I started coming to this church many, many years ago, Pastor Andreas said to me, Michael, I've got a word of God for you. I want you to go and read Psalm 1. I want you to read it every day. I want you to come talk to me and tell me what God says about that. Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of, scornful, of the scornful, etc., etc., but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. He shall bring forth fruit in his season, and when the dry comes, his leaves will not wither. All those kinds of promises. And what was he doing? He was teaching me to get into the Word every single day and develop a love for the Word of God. Do you think I loved it in the beginning? Something else he gave me was something, read the Bible in a year. That sounds like a great idea, right? How many of you have ever tried that? How many of you have ever succeeded? Hats off. <laughs> Hats off. <laughs> Man, that was law. Every day I've got to spend so much that I didn't like reading. And you know, you get into Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, your lamentations, your... This is heavy, heavy stuff. Revelations, I mean, you read the words, but it could be another language because you don't understand what on earth they are talking about. <laughs> but as you go, God begins to speak. And as you grow, you understand more. He reveals more. Your faith grows more. Your dependence grows more. Your life changes and transforms more. But it's a slow process. 
And then things come at you. And because you have changed, the way you confront and approach those things is different than the way you would have done it before. Because the Word is now working in you. There's a new grace. There's a fresh understanding and a new approach. Folks, the only way that we discipline ourselves is by giving ourselves to something. Now, let's bring this back to spiritual disciplines. Let's talk about time in prayer. Let's talk about time in the Word. Folks, there is no substitute for that. Coming to church once a week is no substitute for regular time in the presence of Jesus. If it's something I believe that is important, that means I need to invest in it. I need to invest time in it. I need to invest money in it. I need to invest energy in it. I need to invest creativity in it. We have different ways of enjoying God. I love to worship God. Other people like to walk and talk to God. Other people like to sit and just read the Bible and pray. For me, the most important thing I've learned is this. Encounter Him. However it is you find Him in the meaningful ways, however it is that you're able to discern His voice, what He is saying to you, whether that's through listening to somebody preach while you walk, whether that's through time in prayer, whether that's in worship, however it works best for you, find your way of making that connection. Because that connection is, is, is where life flows. Mastery and influence do not come for the indifferent. They do not come for the apathetic. They do not come for the lazy. Nothing in life worth having is gained without effort and discipline. Nothing. That's just the way it is. We sometimes have a very fatalistic kind of approach to say, you know, if God wants me to have it, He'll make sure I have it. As if all the responsibility for our life lies on God. And that means it's also His fault for everything in our life that's not going the way we feel it should. Last week, Pastor Andreas brought a powerful message on spiritual versus natural. Many of us struggle to discern the spiritual because we have tuned only into the natural. We're so tuned into this world's way of thinking. We're so tuned in that which is going on in our everyday that we haven't tuned in to the other realm. Why is it that trials of life seem so easily to shake us and cause us to question even God, even our faith sometimes? It's simply because we've placed so much focus and attention on the things and so little on God and His Word. We have not embraced and walked in spiritual disciplines. I want to leave it there for this morning and, and, and we'll pick up the same kind of theme next week. But I want to ask you, what has God been saying to you? And if you're sitting there this morning and going, Michael, I don't really know, I want to say to you, okay, what are you going to do about that? Because I've learned that it's not that God isn't speaking. It's that I'm not listening. And I'm not really hearing. My wife speaks to me often. <laughs> Say no more. Sorry? I'm a man. 
I'm a man, I have selective hearing. Sometimes we don't want to listen to God because we think we know what he's going to say. Do you know how many times I've done this, folks? Do you know how many times I've come into the presence of God feeling heavy, weighed down by something I've done, something I've thought, a worry that's assailed my mind, thinking I'm going to know what God says, that God's going to disapprove, God's going to be unhappy. And when I finally get to that place of just surrender, it's amazing how God just washes over me and goes, you were worried about that? My son, come here. He gives me a noogie. That's what my hair looks like it does. Folks, here's the point I want to make by all, of, all that I've shared so far this morning. When we look at the lives of those four Hebrew boys, there was a testimony of faithfulness of them giving themselves regularly to God in prayer. The outworking of that is that their faith found manifestation in every sphere of their life with wisdom, with understanding, with grace, the way they dealt with things, and the way they confronted not only opposition, but even death with grace, with faith. Jesus said, you know, I have come, and, and, and he talks about this whole vine thing, that those who abide in me will bear fruit. There will be manifestation of their intimacy with me. Their lives will be changed. They will look different. They will think differently. And with the Hebrew boys, with David, with you and I today, when we have that connection, God begins to work through us in such a way that we become His hands and feet. And the fruit that we bear finds manifestation. Not just in how we change, but in how we begin to reach out and change the lives of others. Why? Because this is about more than just you or me, you and me. This is about more than just my comfort, my blessing, and my benefit. But there's a world out there who needs what you and I have. It's crying out for it. It's dying for it. But if we're too preoccupied with ourselves, they're going to stay hungry. They're going to stay wanting. So I want to encourage you today and say to you, what is the Lord saying to you? Are you prepared to get up early to find out? Are you prepared to stay up late to find out? Put in the time and invest the time in His presence, in worship, in prayer, in reading the Word, because there's much God wants to say to you, and there's much He wants to do in you so that you can be His Shadrach, so that you can be His Meshach, His Abednego, His David, His Apostle Paul, His Jesus Christ to the world around you. Shall we stand? Father, we thank you this morning that even as we sung our worship songs today, we spoke of your unrelenting love for us, how you pour over us your grace and your mercy every single day. Thank you that your mercies, Lord God, are new every morning. 
And Father, we just acknowledge that so often we get so preoccupied with life by focusing on the things just of this natural world that we forget that there is a whole other realm where you have planted us, that you call us to live from in the fullness of who you are and in the great inheritance that we have received through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, this morning my prayer for, for everyone in this room and everyone who listens to this message, Lord God, is Lord, that you would rearrest our attention. Help us to, to, to make a quality decision even at this moment, God, to say, Father, I actually don't know what you're saying to me right now. I want to do what it takes to find myself in your presence where I can hear your voice and let you speak into my heart, that I can hear the song that you are singing over me, that I can listen in on the poem that you've written about me before I was even created. Lord, we know that when we encounter you, our lives are transformed. We know that fruitfulness, Lord God, is simply a manifestation of that which takes place behind the scenes. And so, God, we want to pray this morning. Woo us back to that secret place. Lord, we want to commit to, to waiting on you and allowing you to do in us what you did in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, where they were men who stood for what was right. They were men who had great courage and bravery, not because they were strong, but because they knew their God intimately. God, when we know you intimately, we know that the world around us is going to change because you are more powerful and your love is greater and your love never fails in anything to which it is applied. And so, Father, we pray, fill our hearts, flood our hearts with your love, with a love for you, with a love for our neighbors. Give us a desire, Father, we pray this morning, to, fight, to, to, to enter into that holiest place where your presence is, my Lord God, that we may have those encounters with you that change us forevermore. So this is our prayer, Lord, as we go from this place today. Lord, have your way in this. In Jesus' name. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.